back to Radio Physics, a collaboration with the Aspen Center for Physics, KDNK Community Access Radio in Carbondale, and physics students from Roy Fork Valley Schools. Today, we are very fortunate to have Connor Hoffman, a junior at Basalt High School who has been very involved in physics since he was a very young child, and Kenton Cower, a senior at Aspen High School, interviewing Annalisa Bari. I'll give a little bit of background on Annalisa because we're doing this very extemporaneously today. She is uh, a um, professor at the University of Edinburgh and uh, was jointly appointed at the School of Physics and Astronomy and the School of Mathematics. She, her research interests are in the dynamics of stellar systems. Ideas and tools often come from areas of physics and mathematics broadly connected to the gravitational and body problem, which she will talk about. And um, she uses um, information from Gaia, from Hubble, from LIGO, and We'll soon be using information from the new James Webb Space Telescope, which we heard a wonderful introduction to um, at our, at our um, lecture here in Aspen. And you can find that lecture online at aspenphys.org current lectures. I'm now going to turn this over to, let's start with you, Connor. and. Ask away and Annalisa will answer away. She's got an incredible background. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it from what I've seen. Um, just looking at your website and everything, dynamics of star clusters and galactic nuclei. Sounds really cool. Um, I'm interested in the kinematic complexity in kinetic and fluid dynamical systems. Doesn't sound like it's quite as related to um, gravitational uh, bodies and big galaxies and stuff like that but what what kind of is that study <laughs> very good connor you're kind of hitting the hard stuff immediately i'm delighted <laughs> i'm delighted to be here by the way and to meet with you guys um so this phrase that you were referring to this kinematic complexity in a kinetic and fluid dynamical system is essentially the tagline for my mathematical identity so um, as uh, Patty was kindly um, saying in the introduction, I have this kind of double life across physics and mathematics. And in practice, I would see myself as a mathematical astrophysicist in the sense that I try to do things as much as possible, old fashioned ways in the sense of pieces of paper <laughs> instead of supercomputer. Uh, and a lot of thinking about the, the kind of fundamental law of physics that we can try to still use in a meaningful way, as opposed to just run and um, uh, use an embodied or, or a numerical simulation as the first port of entry. Of course, I still need to rely on computation and uh, numerical simulation because not all the problems that are of interest to the community can be just nicely packaged in something that we can attack on a single sheet of paper. But nonetheless, some we can still do uh, with, with this kind of approach. So that kinematic complexity, coming back to, to the main point, is precisely one of those things. There are a bit of a, an obsession in my professional life <laughs> in the sense that I'm particularly keen to try to investigate things that are usually considered to be almost second order effect with respect to the classical paradigm. 
So bringing this in a bit more specific terms, uh, you know that I like dynamics of stellar system. And in particular, this is related to the theme of the conference that is ongoing uh, at the Aspen Center for Physics uh, during this week. A specific class of stellar system that is called globular star cluster. So these are literally balls of stars, <laughs> order of a million of stars uh, that are self-gravitating in the sense that they are connected to one another by the gravitational interaction associated with the bulk of the stars. Um, and this makes them um, very appealing for both astronomers and mathematicians. For astronomers, they are appealing because they are extremely old stellar population. They are amongst the oldest stellar system that we can identify in the universe that we are aware of. So these are almost fossils or remnants of the early formation stages of galaxies. Sometimes you can hear the phrase of, oh, these are the building blocks of galaxies or the sort of um, element that are the, the, this kind of fossil information, galactic archaeology is another way of thinking about this. Um, so this is why uh, astronomers are finding them appealing. Mathematicians uh, or hybrid people like myself are also finding them appealing because they are very clean uh, sort of representation of a mathematical problem. You think about this million stars, represent them as particles, sort of small balls that are going around, and they're regulated by one single equation. This is the equation that we can phrase as the gravitational embody problem. This ultimately just means the equation of motion, like the things that you're studying in your curriculum for high school, uh, literally just the way in which the motion of a particle is regulated by a single force, that's gravity. That's the same gravity that is the cumulative effect of everything that is in there. And, and then if you're able to solve that equation, you're solving the gravitational embody problem. If you do, let me know, because this is tough. <laughs> of course, this is a problem that scales with the number of particles that you're playing with, the number of stars. Really. So if you do n equal 1 over that gravitational n-body problem, this is very boring, since it is a single particle. <laughs> we know how to deal with this. If you do n equal 2, this is still relatively boring in the sense that this is Kepler problem. Uh, it's one star orbiting around another one, the moon orbiting around the earth. Uh, this is stuff that we can control very nicely. This is a very deep uh, sort of mathematical, uh, simple problem inspired by physics, but nonetheless, we can do this. N equal three, three bodies orbiting uh, around one another, around the, the relative center of mass. We can do up to a point, Poincaré, the, the sort of classic mathematician, identified cases where we can actually do this, still pen and paper. But the moment in which you start relaxing some of this simplifying assumption over these cases, stuff gets out of control. <laughs> we cannot do this. If you go uh, any for four and higher, not to mention to go to a million, you're screwed. <laughs> In the sense that there's no way we can have a general recipe that can allow us to solve this and say, okay, I, I'm done. <laughs> Give me something else uh, and I'll move on to a different problem. So this is where numerics comes in. And uh, again, I'll try to bring back to your original question, sorry for digressing a little bit, uh, the complexity in the sense of trying to bring in this idea of the kinematics that is a rich element into this, is to try to take this paradigm in which I'm just considering the motion of the stars in the gravitational and body classical sense, 
and try to give them a little bit of an extra flavor. Literally, for example, spin them up. If I'm on top of just considering this distribution of my million particles, I also say, well, maybe the orbits are particularly elongated or, or shaped in, in a way that is not just the sort of trivial one. This is what we te technically call in jargon anisotropy. And this is one element of the complexity. Or maybe we can take the bulk of this ball of stars that I was describing, and we make them spin uh, systematically in terms of just rotating that ball of stars a little bit. And this is the role of the angular momentum, again, in the same frame of what you're studying for, for high school, and try to see what is the implication on the overall gravitational effect that is associated with this, the phrasing of the problem in the sense of bringing in a little bit more of this complexity in there. I like doing this because these are still simple effects that I can phrase and identify even mentally uh, with, with the simple physics behind. And I can write equations <laughs> that I can actually solve um, to, for example, come up with global models that are relying on simplifying assumption, of course, there. Um, we call this mean field approach in the sense that I'm smoothing over the information of these particles in the way in which I describe in the associated gravitational field. And I'm not doing the kind of fine, painful work or solving all the equation of motion exactly. But this is the essence of it. And we have different mathematical way of going about with it. Uh, sometimes we learn from plasma physicists who have been doing this kind of uh, approaches before us um, or fluid dynamicists, because this is the kind of approximation that also can come into play. And it's just very rich and exciting because then you can get effect that you didn't expect. For example, you can have um, the formation of that ball of stars into making it a pancake or a rugby ball in association with this type of effect. And these are all elements that are important to us because can affect uh, the way in which you then interpret observational uh, data that are, that are being collected by different observatories and satellites. Fantastic. That, that was a really good way of explaining it. Thank you very much. No, no, no. It um, was a great question. Thank you. Uh, and then uh, I wanted to jump on. So when I was talking to some other physicists, they talk about how on pen and paper, you can't really figure out where everything's going to be in the end. That's just too complicated. But you can still do computer sim simulations, correct? So you can correct. still figure out where it would be. It's just not as nice as a, a clean formula or something like that. Yes, this, this is true, uh, especially when you want to bring in a lot of realistic physics, messy physics, as I call it, in the sense that this is my bias showing, of course. Uh, but, but for example, you want to ask not just keeping back the idea of this ball of stars, not just the motion of the particles in this very idealized way of representing it, but also, for example, the fact that these particles are actually stars uh, and the stars are evolving and I want to incorporate stellar evolution into this. There's no way you can couple stellar evolution and dynamics unless, for example, you actually run a simulation, a numerical simulation, where these two things can, can be uh, uh, coexisting in a way within the numerical framework. So if you want to be realistic, of course, you need to go there. I have a personal caveat in all this in the sense, of course, as I said, I, I run simulation myself because I want to validate my, my intuition. Um, but if there is a way to try to have an intuition that, that works on pen and paper on the sort of fundamental level, I still think that is extremely valuable to try to have this uh, in your brain, <laughs> because sometimes we are at the risk of just re-simulating reality. 
uh, and and yes, this is gratifying because then you can say, oh yes, I'm finding something that is representative of what I see. But do I really understand it? What is the fundamental principle in there? So I think that the value, especially in sort of modern uh, settings of, of research, um, is still there for for doing simple analytical theory as much as possible. And, and you stumble upon unexpected ideas sometimes, if you're lucky, usually at the interface of disciplines, in the sense that this is a little bit, uh, again, my bias showing with respect to my background. When you're kind of playing across different community, maybe different disciplines altogether, mathematics and physics, you learn stuff that people have been using uh, for ages in another context that is completely new to another community. So there is a lot of uh, productive thinking uh, at the interface. And life is usually twice the fun because you get to have two sets of colleagues <laughs> that are telling you very interesting things. Fantastic. Kenton, I don't know if you have any questions yet. Oh, I have a whole bunch of questions if you're ready to <laughs> oh, answer <dear>. them. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> okay, so Connor asked uh, his first question and it brought you a bit into um, the globular uh, galaxies. Yes. And I wanted to ask you, you said that we can uh, model them and represent them as spinning around. And yes. so therefore we can protect, predict where they're going to go. Yes. I'm wondering if, do, do you spin them around one plane, like kind of like a top, or do you have different rotations, like you spin them in all three dimensions instead of just two? Anton, I wish all my colleagues had your intuition, to be honest, <laughs> in the sense that you're, you're having a very clear mental picture about this. And it's not trivial to define uh, the orientation of the angular momentum in there. Uh, in the sense that, of course, you can say maybe, um, especially because this ball of stars is not living in isolation alone in the universe. That ball of stars, this globular star cluster, are usually uh, located inside as a larger host galaxy, as we call it. Take the Milky Way, our own galaxy. We have 150 of those balls, 70s, I think by now, we keep discovering them. Um, but but they, they do live in an environment. So that environment is giving you preferential direction uh, in the way in which angular momentum, for example, can be imparted on and different processes that are regulated this. So uh, some, some way of thinking about this is to say, maybe the way in which the orbit of these balls of stars inside our own Milky Way, for example, uh, is the, the sort of process that is responsible for transferring some of this angular momentum onto the actual distribution of the stars in the sense of making it spin in a spe specific direction. So that would be a possibility related to the orientation of the orbital plane. We are not quite sure that this is the full picture of it, for example, because maybe there was a mechanism by which that ball of stars at formation was actually already receiving some angular momentum that had nothing to do with the orbital environment and this sort of setting within the, the, the bigger galaxy. So maybe there is a randomness to this, which is related to the fact that that ball of stars, um, before being a ball of stars, were actually a clump of gas within which all the stars formed. And maybe that clump of gas was actually already spinning according to some direction. And that spinning orientation was actually imprinted in the way in which the stars formed. And maybe this can be completely different with respect to the orientation designed by the orbital evolution. 
So the, the honest answer is that we don't know because we just started measuring this kind of effect very recently. Historically, these balls of stars, for example, have always been considered to be non-rotating, kind of classical and, and uh, a little bit boring even. <laughs> but, but now we know through all the different probes, uh, as, as Patti was introducing the satellite Gaia, um, uh, Hubble, uh, that is delivering this very long baseline information. This is a 20 years worth of observation uh, of the same ball of stars, is delivering a lot of uh, dynamics uh, that, that we can exploit for doing this type of modeling. Um, so this kind of thing are now becoming available to us with high precision, and this is uh, enabling us to think creatively about the dynamics and kind of pinning down the specific effect uh, for even this simple physics. Uh, great, thank you. As a like, quick follow-up to that, yes. uh, in determining the history of how these formed or what could have made them rotate, would the infrared capabilities of the James Webb Space Telescope help supply you with information to study <laughs> yes. that? Yeah, um, so um, yes, with, with the caveat in the sense that um, James Webb is going to be revolutionary to our community because it's going to allow us to go back in time, sufficiently far back in time, to identify the stage of deformation of these balls of stars, the small uh, global cluster. Um, to be able to, this is already a big achievement in the sense that at this moment in time, without James Webb, we cannot have enough information far back uh, that can allow us to say, oh yes, this is that clump of gas in the act of becoming a ball of stars. So we're not there yet. So the challenge number one is to be able to, to have that uh, identification of that moment. Uh, the first thing that we'll be able to identify through, through Webb uh, is the size. So how big they are, or really how small they are and compact they are. And this is already um, something that we're starting to, to try to uh, attack and, and characterize, but we're not quite there yet. So if we're able to first say, okay, this is, is an actual star cluster, it's not a larger galaxy, it's a small thing that is particularly compact and has this size, um, it's, it's already an achievement. To be able to have kinematics in the sense of something that is related to the way in which the stars that have been formed in that ball of stars actually move, um, James uh, Webb is not going to be sufficient, but there are new generation of ground-based telescope that can help supply that information on the kinematics. So these are the ELTs, very boringly named, extremely large telescope. <laughs> Literally, this is the acronym. <laughs> We're not particularly sort of creative <laughs> in the astronomical community. So these new class of 30 meters telescope that, that are being developed uh, in, in Europe and elsewhere, uh, supplemented with the information with with web uh, should be the perfect combo to allow us to have this, this uh, sufficient information to pin down also the kinematics and everything else that is related to going beyond a statement of existence and size in principle. So did you say a 30 meter telescope? Yes. <laughs> James Webb is six meters. Well, so. one is in space, one is in the ground. <laughs> so this is why you can have completely different sizes. And of course, they operate on different wavelengths. So Webb was, was as you 
uh, learn yesterday evening at the public lecture was already a big achievement. Um, so uh, we were told all this uh, battles about the size and the fact that you need to have that specific size in order to enable the kind of science that you really want to achieve and you don't want to compromise. So web was already at the extreme of what was technologically feasible for this. If you're staying on the ground and you're operating on different wavelengths, you, you can do more. And it's still, of course, a very big technological challenge because you need to operate that thing and design it in such a way that actually delivers the, the, the quality of the observation that you, you wish to achieve. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always a, a threshold of, of, of challenges that we need to battle against. Great, that was a great explanation. When I was looking at your profile, I got extremely interested in uh, whatever minor reference you had in theoretical astrophysics. Yes. <laughs> Um, and the global, globular clusters yes. of stars, they, I looked them up and they were described as having extremely high and dense gravity. Yes. And there was also a theory where gravity is so weak because it leaks into fourth and fifth and higher dimensions. <laughs> Yes. And this, you know, kind of relates uh, and like that moved into the uh, fluid wave theory mm -hmm. with space. Do you mind explaining that, how that all connects for us? Okay. Well, this is a very rich question. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll do my best to try to, to attack the different elements with it. So first statement, yes, these are very dense uh, systems. This is the other, the third characteristics uh, that makes them unique and, and appealing to, to different people. So dense means that there is just a lot of mass in the form of a variety of stars that is confined in a very small volume. So this makes the gravity as a result of it very strong um, to the point that sometimes you need to account for relativistic effect in the sense of variation with respect to Newtonian theory into general relativity. Um, this, this is true in the sense that we, we can have this kind of effect uh, available in the very core of global clusters that are even within our own Milky Way. Uh, so when you wish to have precise information that account for these things, especially, for example, um, one thing that we didn't touch just yet is the fact that um, in principle, in the very core, in this very dense central region of, of the balls of stars, we can have a variety of stellar mass black holes. We know that they are there, and this is now uh, is not just speculation, we have observational confirmation that they're actually existing in this location and possibly in high numbers. So whenever you're trying to characterize, for example, define dynamics of the stellar mass black hole, you need to account for a relativistic effect to do a very precise job fundamentally. Um, so the second part of your question <laughs> was um, uh, kind of asking about exotic theory of gravity. And this is also something that, that uh, is directly linked to, to global cluster, not necessarily maybe on the strong gravity regime. Some people maybe are speculating in that regard. Uh, but one thing that is uh, attracting attention in the community in this context uh, is uh, the possibility of testing through global cluster and the motion of the stars in global cluster, modification to the theory of gravity in the sense of MOND, which is an acronym that stands for Modified uh, Newtonian Gravity Theory. So this is one way of trying to say, well, 
maybe there are anomalies that we see on the astrophysical landscape on different scales, and we normally resolve them uh, or pacify ourselves <laughs> in a resolution by saying, well, maybe there is a, a component of the mass that we don't quite see, but we feel on gravity. And we call this dark matter because we don't really have a clue of what's going on in there. <laughs> so um, this, this is a possibility. Uh, and, and we don't really expect to see dark matter in global cluster. This is a very old question. It's actually a conundrum, really. Should we expect it? Is there? Is not there? <laughs> We're really sure. If there is room for it, it may be in the very outer region of the balls of stars where the distribution of the stars become progressively more diffuse. We have fewer and fewer of them. And maybe we're not measuring their motion exactly. Maybe there is room for that extra missing invisible, uh, invisible mass that is actually contributing to the gravity field in the outer region. So some people are thinking about this more seriously nowadays because of the quality of the data that is also increasing. Some people are taking the extreme view of saying, well, maybe it's not dark matter in there. Maybe we can test different paradigms for modification of gravity. So uh, some, some colleagues were actually very excited about trying to do this kind of test over kinematical information in the very outskirts of galactic global cluster that are really things that are living in our own backyard, in our own galaxy. So this is why is, is making them essentially sufficiently appealing for this. And also because people that are thinking about this modification of gravity and in general, the problem of dark matter uh, is, is getting desperate <laughs> because we don't really have any other uh, phenomenological evidence of how to go about and try to, to wrap our head around what this thing is actually is. So yeah, they come in, in handy even for this kind of stuff. <laughs> Right. And we have Thank you for that explanation on the three topics and the bonus dark matter. <laughs> yes. And now I have know. to break in and say, oh my goodness, we are coming to the end of our time. And it has been really incredible as a non-scientist myself, listening to the three of you talk has been very exciting and inspirational. And um, I am so proud of these high school students. And we see this again and again, and are so grateful to our physicists who share their time with the high school students. So I'd like to thank you again, Annalisa Vari from the University of Edinburgh, and Kenton Cower and Connor Hoffman for doing a really great interview. Thank you all, and thank you, KDNK Radio.